Hello. Hello, hello. So hi, my name is Blake. I'm under the impression that I am Blake number two. Happy to be, be Blake number two. Um, and it's pretty sweet to be here. First, I want to thank you guys for letting me come. This is quite an honor uh, to be able to share. And thank you for the FCA leaders that hosted my wife and I to dinner. You guys have an amazing team of leaders that are looking over you guys. Um, and thanks for the worship team for the stellar, stellar uh, experience with the Lord. Uh, this is my alma mater. I am uh, I'm 37, but I was here from 2000 to 2005, five years. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I half expected to come here and see that this was renovated because when I do come to the campus once a year, uh, everything seems to be changing very rapidly. But this is exactly like it was in 2000, so that was kind of a surprise. Um, I was actually here two weeks ago, uh, two Fridays ago. I have an annual tradition that uh, around the time of the year uh, when the trees start to turn and get colorful and they really start to pop, usually, usually around early November, that's a good band, if you know they're early November, um, I try to get up here and spend a whole day. I usually take a day off or use a weekend day, and I call it like a Sabbath day. I don't know if that's a strange term for you. But I essentially get here in the morning, and because I went through some pretty significant things like many of us do when we're in college, uh, I get in the morning, and uh, I sort of start. I park my car down in the pit. I don't know if you still call it the pit now. Um, I parked down there, which I did uh, two weeks ago, and then I was like, wait a minute. I'll get a ticket. And so um, I went through a lot of work to get to a safe parking place. And then I go to where I was a freshman, which was the shoeboxes. And so when I was uh, a freshman, there was like some girl shoeboxes and some guy shoeboxes. So I was in gear. And uh, I always make that trip up the hill. And uh, I think about the times that I was towed twice as a freshman. And y'all, it was traumatic for me. I had so little money. And the first time it happened, I'm like, I know that my car was here. Uh, and the second time when my car wasn't there, I was like, I know what just happened. I'm going to throw up, you know. And uh, so then I just started walking through my different years of Clemson that I'll relate to you here in a minute. One of the first things invariably that I remember, this is a very vivid memory for me, was, I don't know if it was my first day or in the first week, but I had this uh, purple diamondback mountain bike that I loved, and it was, you know, chained out front. And to me, like, being a high schooler, the idea of riding your bike to class was very cool. So day one, I get my bike out, and then I sort of ride down the little alley and start going up the road, you know, that leads from the stadium alongside where the old Harkham was and towards Harding. And uh, I don't know if you, um, you know, like, if you're just sort of chilling on your bike, you're kind of like, good, 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 good. But then sometimes if you need to kind of muscle it up a hill, you sort of stand up and you're kind of pushing it, you know. But uh, like when I was growing up, I watched some BMX movies where I always thought that cool guys on bikes, they wouldn't just stand up and be like this. You'd like whip that thing, you know, like get really fast. And so I started whipping it up the hill and I'm in the zone. And, uh, and then I realized that the car is coming behind me. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable getting a bike over a curb. You know, if, like, if you're going perpendicular to the curb like this, you can just kind of, like, you know, stand up, you lift up your wheel, and then the, the, the rear one just follows suit, you know? But this one, this car caught me off guard. And I'm getting to that place at the top of the hill where there's a big field, path that goes to the library. That's where I got to get. So I see this car. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll just pop my wheel over. But instead of going, like, perpendicular, I'm, like, running alongside the curb. And so I get my first one up just fine. But the rear wheel does not jump the curb. And it just drags along the curb. And I've got my huge backpack, you know. So I'm like this standing up. And so when it starts to fall, I got some reflexes. So I kind of bail. But I kid you not, for more than, five, uh, for more than 100 feet, didn't eat it, but this is what I did. And if you lived on campus, you saw that. I mean, anyone with peripheral vision 
saw what happened. I thought it was hilarious. I actually wasn't that humiliated. It was so funny to me. But, I mean, who does the windmills? They were amazing. I just imagine somebody at the top of one of, like, the, the high-rises. They're just, like, typing away, doing their homework. And they're like, oh, you know, look out their window. <laughs> but, okay, so all joking aside, um, what I really do on my Sabbath day is I try to revisit some of the stuff that I went through with the Lord in the five years that I was here. And... Uh, and hopefully they'll kind of set us up for what we're going to focus on tonight. I want to relay some of that to you. I don't mean it would be a sob story, but it's, it's just slightly intense for a moment. Uh, so my freshman year, uh, my father got sick pretty unexpectedly. And within a span of about a month, uh, he passed away. And it was very abrupt uh, for my whole family. Very cataclysmic for me personally and for my mom. Um, and so a lot of college for me was going through the fallout of having to support myself through college and losing some of my immediate family. So I've, I revisit a lot of those places. But the thing was, it really did something to my faith. I learned about Jesus when I was in the 10th grade. And I was always a hyper dweeb. I'm still a hyper dweeb. I'm not going to make you laugh at all tonight except in that story because I'm just, I'm not funny. I'm just heady. And I was never cool. And in the 10th grade, I literally heard that there were some cool girls that went to Young Life. I'm like, well, I'll go. And uh, that was how I learned about Jesus. And I was really active in my faith for the next two years, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Um, when I got to Clemson, my hope was really just to kind of get a safe degree, something I liked, maybe earn a little bit of money if I needed to, but I really just wanted to get like a computer science degree and then go to seminary. I wanted to be like C.S. Lewis. He's kind of my hero. Uh, I wanted to be an author and defender of the faith. But when my father died, uh, there's a lot I could share about all that, but it really shook up my faith for a lot of reasons you might not guess. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about what I see in hindsight. I see in hindsight that for the two years coming up to that, that incident, um, I see that arrogance has wrecked a lot of my relationships over the years. And I was very arrogant in high school. And I really went about Christianity like a social system. It was dominantly a social system for me. It was like school or athletics or music. Uh, though I wasn't better at other people, I wanted people to think I was better. So a lot of my being fervent as a Christian was about this social thing. And I also uh, treated theology a lot like I did physics or calculus. It was like a set of complex ideas that I could be better at than you. And I'm ashamed of it now when I look back on it. But when my dad got sick, I remember Matthew 21, 22 said that if you ask her anything in prayer and you believe it, you will receive it, then you will have it. And when my dad went to the ICU, uh, I, I was so sure of what the Lord was doing. Uh, I thought God was going to help our family just not take for granted a lot of the stuff that we had that we weren't mindful of. It, we had kind of a dysfunctional family. I thought I saw everything that God was up to. So I prayed, and I didn't feel like I was manufacturing faith. Um, but when he died, uh, it, it really, really confused me. So by the end of my freshman year, I had come to reject Christianity. I was an atheist. I became preoccupied with not giving myself to things that I could lose. So I changed my degree from computer science. I didn't want to be money-driven. I changed it to fine art and philosophy. Uh, I thought if I was in a hospital bed when I'm 70 and I can still think, then I'll imagine things creatively. I'll never lose that. I'll be able to think about things sharply. I'll never lose that. And really as a philosophy student, um, I never finished that degree, by the way. I did finish the art degree. Uh, but as a philosophy student, I really cultivated and deepened a belligerent atheism, an anti-Christian atheism. And for those three years, I accumulated a lot of arguments against Christianity. God rescued me out of that in 2004. It really was about a span of an hour. I sat down in a chair, and I was an atheist. 
And after about an hour of thinking, I got up and I was sure I could not possibly live as a consistent atheist anymore. It was one of the worst days of my life. I feel like everything I had fought for for three years was, I'm just going to have to tell people sorry. I was wrong. Uh, and I spent about a year saying, okay, I think God is real. Who is he? Definitely not the Christian God. I'm going to read my Bible just to make sure I can articulate to you why it's not the Christian God. And God used a number of things, including a couple roommates and me reading the Bible to finally root me back into faith that Jesus is God. Let me say a couple little things about what I just shared with you. Uh, one, I know that all of us in this room are, to different degrees, doing Christianity for social motives. And I can just tell you that that collapsed on me. And I know what it's like to come into a room. I didn't, I didn't meet my beautiful wife until I was 30. I know what it's like to come into a Christian setting and want to date somebody and be very driven by that. It's understandable. But watch your heart. Watch your heart for how much that motivates you. And then second, if you're someone who would say you think a lot about God, you, maybe you know a lot about God, but you don't have a sense of like a dynamic, interpersonal thing that you've got going on with him, then uh, I don't know, guys. It's a rough spot. It can collapse. It's wonderful to think about God, but it's wonderful to do that atop a life-giving, real relationship with him. As mysterious as it is, it needs to be on top of intimacy not replacing intimacy. So assuming you guys are like me on some level, those are just two small encouragements. So let's talk about what happened after college, and then we'll get into what we're going to really dwell on tonight. So after I left college, uh, that first year of me being a Christian was very tumultuous. Um, me believing that Jesus was God did not resolve all the arguments. I had so many arguments, reasons for thinking that religion, and in particular Christianity, was false that I didn't have addressed. And so for a year, I just thought, well, will I become an atheist again? I was a Christian once before. Will I become an atheist again? Uh, I did the social stuff before. Am I just going to become a social Christian again? Am I going to think about God and he's just going to collapse on me again? It's crazy tumultuous. I'm, and this is such a long story, but I'm just giving you quick, quick details. One of the things that the Lord did to bring me out of that and give me solidity was in February 2006, um, God had been working with me for months to bring me to a, fa a place of seeing that I needed to relate to him as my spouse, not in some distant esoteric Bible theology way, but like that true, you know? So I got this silly ring. I wear two wedding rings. I have since, two, well, you know, I've won the first one since 2006. I married my wife in uh, 2014. That's embarrassing. Is it 15? I've <laughs> been married four and a half years. Um, why am I telling you all this? Other than just let you know about me and then the person that's talking to you. So I'm trying to set the stage for the fact that since then, I would say the dominant thing in my life has been trying to press into what real relationship with God is like with Jesus. It's very mysterious for me. I, I relate a lot to David. You read one psalm on one page, and he's like, oh, Lord, you're so close. And then the very next page, he's just like, where are you? You know? And I, I feel that. I simultaneously think that today, standing before you now, I'm an I'm an incredibly happy man. There's so many things about my life that I could tell you about and just be like, man, that's cool. That's good. But the best thing about my life is my life with the Lord. You should see the smile on my face. Oh, gosh. When I get into the office at work in the mornings and I get some time with him, I love it. Oh, he is the best thing in my life. And he gets stiff competition from a lot of good stuff. And yet, I still want more. I would be happy if he came back tonight and just cut this all short. I'm so eager to be with him. But I do know him. And I do love him so much. I know he loves me. 
And so I want us to focus on what is real relationship with the Lord like? Is, can we get practical about it tonight to some degree? And I think we can. I'll tell you what this feels like to me. Um, when I first talked to some of your FCA leaders about coming here tonight, uh, it felt to me like, um, could you talk about abiding? That's the word I'm going to introduce to you in a moment. Could you talk about like how to make relationship with God kind of practical? And I, I love that subject matter. I'm not like a public speaker, guys. But if you want to say, can you talk with some people about this? I'm like, yes, I would like to. Um, I'll do what I can. It feels to me like I walk into this huge pantry, and it's just lined with shelves everywhere, jars and food and stuff stored away. And I'm like, okay, we can talk about any of this. What are we going to talk about? And I've got like 30 minutes, and I don't know what to say. So what I'm hoping to do tonight is after looking at all the things we could talk about, which could be for hours, this really is appropriate for discipleship. If this is a subject you care about, please talk with your peers and say, let's, you know, let's go after this together. If you know people that you trust their life with the Lord and you want to glean from them, go to them, be, go to them and be like, could you train me? Because this needs many conversations worked into the details of your life. But if I can give you 30 minutes, then I'll do that. Here's my plan. When I walk into this pantry, jars everywhere, I see like three barrels that are gigantic and they're really important. So I'm going to try to tote these things out for you guys. We're just going to talk about these three gigantic things in this whole conversation. I'm going to try to get really practical with some ways that you can draw near to God and he, draw near, he may draw near to you. Okay? You on board for that? All right. Let me get a little drink. Okay. That's just soda water in there, guys, in case you're curious. It's not the cinnamon Coke. Have you had the cinnamon Coke? It's, it's really good. <clears throat> Okay, can I get our first slide up? The Bible has a way of talking about this idea, actually has a lot of ways to talk about this idea of like a close, real, personal relationship with God. And um, one of the best ways the Bible talks about it is this word abide. Uh, so abide, I've got, a, I've got a definition up here that's on the left is Greek. Most of the New Testament is written in Greek. And it's meno. You're most likely to have that word behind whatever you read in English that says abide. And um, there's a word called a lexicon. That's like a language, a dictionary for a, a different language. And so the best lexicon definition that I have seen for abide is to remain in a close and settled union. So why is that awesome? I tried to highlight four words in there that are helpful for me. So abiding. Tonight, when we talk about abiding, we're using a biblical word. We're talking about an experiential relationship with God, okay? Important. So what is it? It is to remain. Not uh, sporadically experience. It's not like a Sunday, Thursday, Sunday, maybe a quiet time. It's not like that. The invitation of Scripture is to remain in something with the Lord. Remain in what? In a union. That's the last word, skipping a couple of them. So union, yeah, this is like a marriage. You know, that's what my wife, her name is Amaris. Uh, a union is like a oneness, a one fleshness. Um, what we are trying to remain in with the Lord is something a lot like a marriage, a one fleshness. Because you are in Christ if you have believed in the gospel and accepted Jesus in that way. And he makes his home in you, Okay. So we're trying to remain in a union. That's the invitation of Scripture. What kind of union? A close union. I had a, I had a mental image as I thought about this word. And it was, it's like the invitation is for Christ to, he says to you, I want something like a marriage with you. Why don't you live in my house? We could do life together, just like you know, my wife and I do. We could do daily life together. Um, that invitation's there, and then a lot of us are like, yeah, I'm in. Tell you what, um, I'm going to stand outside the fence of your property, 
And if you would, could you just like write some messages for me and ball it up on a piece of paper and hookshot it over the wall? And then I'll grab the ball and I'll read it. And then we'll be in a relationship, you know? Like that's a distant relationship. That is not really interpersonal. Um, but maybe like we read the Bible or we read a devotional thing and God will speak to us through those words maybe sometimes. That's cool. And by the way, the Bible is the most precious physical thing in my life. I adore the Bible, so I'm not, I'm not diminishing the Bible. But the invitation is to live in the house. To abide is to remain in a close union, not occasional hookshot, balled up, crumpled things of paper from Jesus outside the fence. Hopefully that's not a lame example. Um, okay, lastly, settled. To remain in a close and settled union. This thing is not under threat, guys. This is uh, there's like a deep resolve thing. I am married to Amorous. Death do us part. That's, that junk is resolved. Deep. You know? And it should be deeper with the Lord. That's what we're talking about when we talk about abide. Let's look at some passages. Next slide, please. Uh, John 15 is going to get one of your beefiest turkey legs in Scripture about abide. And so here are four verses that draw out something I want you to see. I color-coded some stuff. The thing about abiding is it's not you just pursuing Jesus and then that's it. Abiding is a mutual thing. It's something that you do and he does. Whatever you do and he does. It's very one fleshy. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. Did you know that the Lord abides in you? Did you know that the Lord remains in a close and settled union with you? Whoever abides in me and I in him, dot, dot, dot. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. This last one, I kind of put the blue on the bottom and the yellow on the top because it's sort of saying both. He's like, abide in my love, and love is just very relational. Love isn't a one-sided deal. Love is bidirectional. So can you see it? Can you at least see in these four passages that abiding is something that it's dynamic and it flows in between you two back and forth? Okay? Cool? So. That's kind of our scriptural, scriptural foundation. What I want to do now is before we drag out some of these barrels, um, it's like uh, I got to do a little bit of groundwork. because I'm going to try to give you some really practical nuts and bolts level stuff about how to draw near to God and how he might draw near to you and you experience that bi-directional abiding. I'm going to try to get really practical. But the thing is, if we're going to bust out some practical stuff, it's got to sit on a foundation of something. So if you'll just bear with me for a minute, i got to say some junk about abiding before we get into the nuts and bolts. First, I want to say this is a gospel issue. Y'all, hey, man, let me, let me just interject myself for a second. What I really want for you tonight, um, I want you to listen to your Lord as I speak. Because I'm going to try to give you some possible things you could do to walk in an abiding way. And I would love it. This would be my dream. My dream would be that every one of you, as you listen to me, a lousy speaker, are hearing your Lord stir you up to something that seems like what he would like you to do to be faithful. So I would love it if you would have a phone out or a piece of paper. And you would, as you listen to me, pay attention to your Lord like a hawk. And if I toss out a suggestion and it resonates with you, when you walk out tonight, be ready to act in faith. Because you think, like if you can get to a place of saying, I went to FCA tonight, but I don't know, but I think maybe God wants me to do blah, blah, blah. So I could be wrong, but I'm going to go for it. I think that's a fantastic place to be. Try to get there tonight, okay? In parentheses. Back to what I was saying. Okay, so God, uh, abiding is a gospel issue. And when I first thought about talking tonight a few weeks ago, I was like, man, how do I even, how can we possibly talk about nuts and bolts of experiencing relationship with Christ 
when I'm not even sure who here does or doesn't know the gospel. Uh, so I've been assured that there have been some awesome stellar teachers, including my, one of my closest friends, Stuart Fuller, was at here a couple months ago. And I know he, t- he shared the gospel with some of you. Um, but you guys, this, this conversation tonight is meaningless if you do not understand and believe in the gospel. The gospel meaning Jesus' lordship, death, and resurrection. These are the three pillars of the gospel. They must all three be in there. And you have to work out the implications of these three things. If you don't feel solid here and feel like you, you need to grow or need discipleship here, or you just want to talk about it with your friend and try to get stronger, then please do. Because to, to have a busted apprehension of the gospel and then try to talk about how to draw near to God when you don't understand who he is as your Lord, who he is as your Savior, who died for you, who he is as your King that is alive and ruling because of his resurrection. Um, God used busted stuff all the time, so maybe it's going to be awesome, but it's not a rescue. So abiding is a gospel issue. That's my groundwork point number one. Groundwork point number two, affection for Christ has got to undergird all this. Holy smokes, if I can encourage you to become a student of your own affectionate regard for Christ, it will pay monumental dividends for your life ahead. Maybe you're already there. That's awesome. Uh, I have to watch over my affections like crazy. It is a very different thing if I go on a date with my wife and my heart towards her is warm. And I'm glad and engaged with her, fully present. Contrasted with if I go on a date with her and I'm disinterested, I'm distracted, I kind of would rather be somewhere else. Those, those are two utterly different dates, <laughs> right? Right? So abiding is the same way. I'm going to give you some concrete stuff about how to draw near to the Lord and how your Lord might draw near to you. But we got to be doing this on an affectionate thing. He's to be our treasure and our pearl of great price. So watch for your own affections. Point number two. Point number three. Uh, This is really similar, but I'm just phrasing it a different way. Um, Really be a student of the lifelessness versus the relationality of the things that you do in your Christian practices. Um, How many of you are like me in the sense that you know exactly what it's like to read the Bible, and when you're done, you've done exactly what you did with a textbook. Your eyes go over the words, you struggle to pay attention, and then you're done. You were productive, you know, but there wasn't any real life behind it. Do you know what that is like? I know what it's like. Yes. I assume we all know what that's like. And I loathe that in myself. Uh, but we just got to watch it. We got to watch when we come to the Lord in the Bible and all we're doing is just what we do for school. And it's not actually trying to know our living, loving Lord who is abiding in us. We got to watch when we're singing here at FCA or on a Sunday at your congregation, whatever it may be. And, and what we're thinking about is like what's happening in our voice, how we sound, how we sing our harmonies, how's this music, how are the musicians, you know what I'm saying? Ephesians 5.19 will say, when you sing, make music in your heart. So, like, if, you, if you're studying the lifelessness versus the life-givingness of the things that you're doing in your Christian practices, then you're in good shape. But if you're not, then if you try to do some of this abiding stuff, these barrels I'm going to set out for you, then uh, they're probably just going to be lifeless, too. Because it takes work to to. Watch the subtleties and nuances of your heart. This is random, and I didn't, I'm just sharing this, but I play drums, too. And uh, I remember when I first started playing drums, it was often really, really worshipful for me, just pound away in my, in my room. I remember the first time I was playing a song. It was Kim Walker's Open Up Heaven. And I was, as I was hitting the snare, I can't explain it to you, but I was hitting that snare so worshipfully. I've had so many precious moments of drumming in my in my home. And 
I have realized lately that a lot of my drumming for my church, a lot of my drumming in my personal time, I am struggling to really express things to God as I'm drumming and paying hard attention to my hands and the beat, and, and I've lost some life. And for me trying to regain that, even just this week, trying to play a couple uh, worshipful songs and express things in my drumming to the Lord, it was hard. So I'm just commiserating with you. It would be nice if this was just a lot easier and we didn't have to deal with sin or an occult heart. But, guys, let's just agree to watch ourselves in this. And remember, you're paying attention to your Lord like a hawk. How does he want you to walk in faith if anything I'm saying is resonating with you? Okay, so that's the groundwork. I think we're ready to drag out some barrels. <clears throat> so the gospel, the gospel is Jesus' lordship, death, and resurrection, and all the things that that means for your life. You can say it in a million ways, but it's got to have those core identities, because that is who Jesus is. He is God come in the flesh, and not merely God who is in charge, but God who is my Lord. The one I relate to is I'm happy for him to be my boss. I'm happy to be the one I take my cues from him. And because he died, his died has special, it means things, y'all. And in his death, he became my savior, our savior. That means some things. And in his resurrection, he is ruling now as a king. He's alive, dwelling in us, giving power to relate to him through anything, power to do any act of love that he calls us to, resurrection power. That's a gospel. So, we can relate to God. We can abide, draw near to him, and try to remain close with him through the lens of a lot of different relationships. Because the Bible talks about Jesus in a number of ways. I could say, in my own life, I spent a lot of time relating to God as my brother, or Jesus as my brother. Some of you may not know that, but uh, Hebrews, 8 and, uh, Hebrews 7 and Romans 8 talk about Jesus as being a brother. Um, and I've also related to God as my father. Heavenly Father. Uh, I've related to him as my spouse, right? Jesus is my spouse. On and on and on. There's so many names of God. And every one of these little uh, titles, is, I don't know how that sounds, titles, names of God, it's a way to relate to him with subtlety and nuance. So I thought, we're going to talk about nuts and bolts of abiding. Let's pick these three relationships that are so core to the gospel. Jesus' lordship, his death, which made him my savior, and his resurrection, which made him my king. And let's talk about how you can abide in your Lord and your Savior and your King. Try to make it concrete for you. Let's start with the next slide. So abide in Christ as your Lord. Uh, this means so many things. I pulled out a couple that connect with me and the people that my wife and I do community with. Connects with them very often. First one, you can go ahead and share that bullet point. The idea is that when Jesus is Lord, one of the things that we are saying about him being Lord is that he owns every square inch of our lives. Contrasted with our tendency to think that maybe God cares about, um, how, do we curse? Uh, do, how much do we drink? Do we drink? What do we do with our boyfriend and girlfriend? And what do we do? Do we go to church, right? These big, big kind of Christian pockets. Yeah, he definitely cares about that. But our life has all sorts of little details. Now, Jesus' lordship involves him having ownership over all of these square inches, okay? And he may want to rule in any one of these square inches. So, here we go. One way, one very powerful and regular way to abide in Christ as your Lord, to draw near to him and anticipate him drawing near to you in response, is when you express things to him like, how would you like me to use the next couple hours of spare time with you? Here's a square inch. Um, I'm thinking about buying a new coat. Mine is five years old. What coat would you like me to buy? I could tell you stories about the, the colors of the walls that I painted in my home. Uh, how I think the Lord had some kind of say in that. What do you think about the possibility of asking the Lord what color he would like your wall? One of your walls. What about your wardrobe? I'm just trying to find little square inches that you might not typically think you could ask the Lord about. Now, he's not an oppressive jerk of a ruler. He's the best 
and wherever he rules, it's only increasingly awesome. So uh, thank goodness I don't have to say to God, Lord, should I take a sip of water? Should I grab it here? Should I grab it now? How, how long of a sip should I take? You know, how many times should I chew this bite? You know, he's not trying to own every little atom of our life. And if you do ask him, he may not always be like, do this. Of course, he's never like that. But, I mean, there have been times where I have pleaded with him for insight about a decision. And essentially what I thought the Lord might have landed with me was, I want you to choose. I'd be happy for you to choose. And we will do this together, whatever you choose. And that may be how he wants to rule. And then sometimes he's like, I want you to use your money for this. I want you to do this with your spare time, etc." So am I making sense? You can draw near to God as your Lord, to Jesus as your Lord, by just inviting him to rule in little square inches. And this is a relational gesture, okay? This is not religion. Don't do this in a dead religious way. Do this in a way that is towards him, thinking about him, expressing things to him, and know that he's going to draw near to you. And I try to give you some insight into how he might draw near to you in your space, okay? Second point. As Lord, he is someone to be obeyed. I think about this kind of like an army commander. I was never in the military. But I kind of imagine how it works is that if you have a commanding officer that says to do something, uh, you, you just do it. Like what this person says goes. It's kind of how I phrase it, you know. And a way to draw near to your Lord practically, relationally, seeking intimacy is that if there's a spot in your life where you have a sense of how he wants you to obey, then obey, but don't obey in a religious way. Uh, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. God has set up life. We are designed by him to know him and walk with him and cultivate the garden, cultivate your class, cultivate this job opportunity, cultivate your relationship, your roommate, whatever. Cultivate everything with him. So if there's a way in which you sense he wants you to obey, do it with him. And this is you coming to the relational table. All right, God, are you going to abide in me here? This is one way you draw near to him is your willingness to obey. And that can be fearful, and uh, often we don't want to do that. But if you will bring this to the table, I think he loves it usually. And it can be a concrete way to draw near. So before I go on to the next one, I just want to take us, give us 30 seconds. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to reflect. Close your eyes for a moment. It really is going to be 30 seconds. That really is a long time to be quiet and may be awkward. That's okay. <clears throat> so close your eyes. Just ask your Lord a simple question. Jesus, are you the Lord of my life? that can be a lot of complex responses that uh, go on right in there. Uh, I'm sure if you're like me, it gets pretty tough to tell the difference between, am I just thinking about is he my Lord? Is he talking to me? Am I just feeling a certain way? And that's one of the things I'll try to talk about in just a minute. <clears throat> but if he addressed you, and you think maybe he addressed you, make a note of it. Because he's trying to abide in you as your Lord. You seek him about Okay, let's talk about abiding in him as our Savior. Uh, show that first bullet point. Uh, we want to talk about forgiveness. So when Christ, hmm, you, maybe, you, maybe you responded to an altar call or said a prayer or something. I don't know. Everybody has a different, you know, uh, way that they come to the Lord. I don't, I don't have any sort of climactic pivot point in my life like that. But... Um, you belong to the family of God because Christ chose you before he laid the earth's foundations. That's out of Ephesians 1. In 2 Timothy 1, he says that before everything was made, he had his eye on you. Kind of had you picked out 
for holiness and grace. So he knew about you, and he adopted you way before you sinned. He, he, he saw your, um, actually what I meant to say is, he saw all your sin in advance, the full thing. He's seen everything you have done, everything you're in right now, everything little pings your conscience when you get 30 seconds of awkward silence, are you my Lord? He sees all that, and he sees everything that you will do, worse or better, and he's unfazed by it. Now the good news, he's unbelievably compassionate. He knows how difficult this is for us. He remembers how he made you, and he knows that you're dust. That's what it says in Psalm 103. So he has forgiven you for all that stuff if you have accepted that gift, okay? Now, maybe that just sounds like an idea, okay? Something to think about. How do you abide in God about that? Um, I just want to underscore that I think it's going to be in 2 Peter 1, 9. We'll say that uh, before this verse, it will mention a number of qualities that Peter wants us to have as followers of Jesus. Really good stuff like brotherly affection, love, godliness, um, knowledge, faith, etc. And then he'll say that those of you who lack these qualities are so nearsighted that you are blind because you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins, which is kind of a trip because it's saying that something about our stagnation is because we aren't mindful that we have been forgiven. He seems to want us, when we come to the table with him, he seems to want us to relate to him and be mindful of the fact that we were forgiven. So one of the ways that you can draw near to your God as Savior is to, uh, oh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It's like, it's almost like you can tell him, I know that you are forgiven. Thank you. It, it's so simple, right? We do this in songs. We sing about it all the time, you know. But when you're doing this, you're talking to a living Lord. And this is part of how you're coming to a relational table with him. And this is a great thing to do. We probably aren't doing it enough, as much as it may seem like you do or don't. Um, so that's a fantastic way to draw near your Savior. But get this. Okay, so next point. Think about how thoroughly forgiven you are. Set your mind on that and do it in a relational way with your Lord and Savior. But even if you know that you're forgiven and that's something you have faith in, often it doesn't get as deep as, so what is his regard for me? Like I understand he saved me. Maybe he's paid my debts, like a legal thing. Okay, just write a check. See you when you die. Maybe you threw your head in together or something. But a lot of people who know that God has forgiven them may still think that God is very disappointed in them. That maybe he's like a distant father. Like you just kind of get that, you get that taken care of and then come talk to me. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not our Lord. So when you think of Jesus, you can think of something like the prodigal father where uh, this cat goes and squanders everything and then he comes up with this whole spiel of how he's going to go back to his father's house and he's like, well, this is what I did. Maybe I could work it off this way and I'm a blah, you were so awesome. I don't know. He comes up with this whole spiel. But you know how, the, how it plays out in Luke 15? The father sees his son from a long way away. And then he hikes up his robes, which is shameful. It's shameful even now in Israel to do that. Shameful 2,000 years ago. And he sprints to his son. Son never gets his spiel in. He just locks him in a hug, throws a party. And he's like, oh, never gets to say anything. This is a good thing to know about your Lord. This is a good thing to know about Jesus and his regard for you. Jesus' regard for you is more than just forgiven. It is permanently irrevocably affectionate and familiar. You're always at the twinkle of his eye. Once you're in Christ, he looks at you like he does Christ. It'll say in Isaiah, I have cast your sins behind my back. It'll say in Jer Isaiah and Jeremiah, I remember your sin no more. It's not like he's forgotten it. He just loves you. So you can draw near to your Savior. Savior come to the table Okay, get this. If I go on a date with Amaris and I think she's annoyed with me, 
that interaction is real different than if I come to the table and what she realized from me. And it's the same way with the Lord. When you come to the Lord, what's, what do you think is your love for you is? And interact with him about that. Let's do another uh, 30 seconds. Go ahead and close your eyes. Put your attention on your living, loving Savior and Lord who is compassionate. And he knows how difficult this is. He knows our cold hearts. He knows the warmth of our hearts. He put it there. He's just glad with you. So ask him, Lord, are you my Savior? Maybe you could ask him, what is your regard for me? Have you forgiven me? Your sins have been flushed. Hey, for what it's worth, um, it says in the Bible that uh, when our consciences have been violated over and over again, that it's, it's almost like uh, they get sledgehammered. And one of the consequences of that is it means we approach the throne of grace less freely. That's using some language from 1 John. So I understand that in praying, just those 30 seconds of silence, I know that there are some of you here who have been uh, just sledgehammering your conscience. And I'm sorry. I'm coming to keep. Um, what's going on here is your, your Savior is not distant from you. Conscience doesn't approach the throne of grace freely, but you can, and this is how you can abide in your Lord. You can be in the throes of the same sin you're doing when you hate him, and, and simultaneously, this is risky stuff to say, sorry, this is part of my real life. You can be doing the thing that you don't want to do, still saying, I know you're going to rescue me from this. I know we're good, and I'm sorry. You can relate to him in the throes of your worst. He bought you way before you ever did it. He's not surprised. Okay, king, you can abide in Christ as your living king. Okay, um, Jesus will say in John 16 that it's better that he go, that uh, he resurrect, because then he can send his spirit, and he'll make his home in you. So a lot, of the, a lot of the ground level faith that we have in Christ's resurrection has to do with, I sort of think of it as the availability of two things. It's the availability to relate to him through anything, through your, the paint on the walls or what to do with your spare time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can, this is, this is worth ordering your whole life around, this reality, okay? You can relate to him through any of that. It'll be mysterious, but you can. You can come to this table. And he will surely come to it as well, though it's mysterious. This is, a, this is an element of faith in the gospel. It is belief that he is alive and attuned to the details of your life. He cares and loves when you bring stuff to him. And you can relate to him about anything. So I would simply say, one way to abide in Christ as your living king is to uh, break whatever framework you have that there are only some things about which you can relate to him. And start relating him about crazy stuff. I mean, I can tell you about the season in 2007 where uh, I love I love cereal. That's not a season. I still love cereal. Um, but I went through a season where in the mornings I was like, all right, God, what cereal do you want this morning? And maybe that's pretty weird. Um, and I wouldn't say that was an insightful season, but, hey, I grew. Um, and you can do this. Have fun with it, y'all. <laughs> like the most amazing person that has ever lived would love to do breakfast with you. Ask him about your breakfast. And maybe you might get something. And maybe you won't. 
That's okay. It's his prerogative. He speaks in sometimes, sometimes he doesn't. Okay, so relate to him about anything. This is, guys, this is like abiding 101. Relate to him about anything. Understand that that invitation is there. You can do it, and it's wonderful. He's pleased by that. Just read the Psalms. Talk to him about everything. And then the second one is that you have power to love in any way that he calls you. So because he is alive and living in you, that if you're spending time with him, relating to him about something, and you think he wants you to do something difficult, uh, I have good news. He is able and willing to give you the power you need to do it. And that's, a, that's like a faith thing, you know? It can really feel like that's not the case. It can really feel like, I have no idea what to say about abiding. I'm not going to accept this speaking engagement. You know, it can, it can feel that way. But an element of faith goes, no, I believe that if he wants me to do this, he will help me do it. Even if it's sloppy, he'll do something great for you guys. I mean, I'm sloppy. That's fine. But there's a faith thing here. You're coming to the table believing you are willing to do this. Okay, um, before I move on to the next point, I hope I'm not going really long. I'm sorry, guys. Um, when you think about Jesus, Jesus, when he was here in flesh and blood, he was not a superhero. We don't look to Jesus thinking there's a man that I could never be like because he's a superhero and an Avenger or something, and I'm not like that, right? Instead, we need to think of Jesus as a man filled with the Holy Spirit who did not sin. And so when we look at Jesus, we think, so this is what life can be like. This is what life can be like. And Jesus was able to relate to God through everything. He only did what the Father showed him to do. He only said what the Father said to say. Everything in Jesus' life, he's following cues from his Father. And that shows us what life is like for us. We have that same abiding invitation. You can relate to him through anything. And when Jesus did crazy stuff to love people, whether it's miraculous or just like the real love of like, I don't know, Martha and Mary or uh, comforting Mary and Lazarus, I don't know. He was a fantastic, flawless lover of people and God, and the Holy Spirit gave him the power to do that. So we put the same faith in the Holy Spirit uh, that Christ had. Make sense? So those are my attempts. When I look in my pantry of, like, abiding, that I just sort of stored up food over the years, those three barrels, that's, that's this gospel stuff. And the gospel is intended to be the sort of organizing ideas for our everyday life. Okay, so this is kind of the, the core stuff I can give you. That's my best shot at giving you a few things of how you come to the table. So now, let's talk about how he comes to the table for you, and then we'll wrap it up, see if we can do this in 10 minutes. So, remember those verses out of John 15. We abide in him and he abides in us. How then does the Lord and Savior and King abide in you? Okay, uh, what is the next slide? I actually can't remember what the next slide is. Oh, yeah, James 4.8. So check that out. If you draw near to God, then what? There's a promise. He will draw near to you. Now, as much as I would like that to be as crystal clear as when Amherst and my wife Amherst and I are talking, it is not like that with him and God. I mean, I don't think it's like that with you. Um, it's mysterious, but he does draw near. How might he draw near? Um, what is our next slide here? These two verses... Uh, I mean, these are huge for me in this whole conversation. So I'll read them. Romans 12, 3 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hebrews 5, 14 says something similar. It says, Solid food is for the mature, but those, for those who have their powers of discernment, there's that word again, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I tried to think about this word discernment. Uh, what is, I was thinking, what's something in the real world, just never mind Christianity for a minute, what is, what's something that would be discerned in the real world? And this is what I thought of. There are some of you in here that can have a cup of methodical coffee. And you could take a sip of this thing and be like, hmm. I think I detect stone fruit, perhaps peach from uh, acidic soils from Ethiopia and blueberry, right? Right? Some of you can pick out those flavors. And then some of you have a, that same cup of coffee and it's like, this tastes like trash water, you know? Or it's just bitter. It's all bitter. Um, 
So what's going on there? That's discernment. That's discernment. So discernment is when among the cacophony of flavors and sensations, as I said, cacophony, you can pick out among the slurry, blueberry, stone fruit. Um, to not be able to discern is like bitter. It's all there. Or you can think of it like a wine taster or something like that, or a Ben and Jerry's taster. <laughs> um, but you feel me, though? This is discernment. So what's it talking about here? To discern with the will of God. To It's almost like, okay, so, so not coffee, but I have in my mind and heart, if I want the Lord's insight about any given thing, then as I start to think about that and draw near to him, you know what I find? I find my idea, my idea, my idea, my idea, my idea, bad idea, good idea, good idea. And then my feelings, feelings everywhere. And then, you know, as we think about spiritual warfare, there are like beings that I can't even see that I think are there that would be like, hey, try this, hey, try this, try this. So I've got temptation, I've got my feelings, I've got my own ideas. And how, among all these flavors, am I going to go, Maybe God wants me to do that. Because that's what's on all of us, y'all. That's what we've got to do if we want to experience relationship is to come to some kind of loosey-goosey sense of, I think maybe the Lord wants this. Maybe we feel very resolved and strong about it, but sometimes we don't feel confident that we can still act in faith. How do we do that? Okay? I'm trying to give you nuts and bolts. How do we do it? Well, it says it here. By testing, by training, and by constant practice. I wish... I wish it was a little simpler. Sorry. Uh, I wish that there was just kind of like a formula or a tool that in a moment you could discern something like that. Now, you kind of have that with the Bible. Whatever's in the Bible is definitely what the Lord said, and that's money. But uh, the Bible, which says love your neighbor, doesn't tell me what to do about the fact that Amherst and I had a conflict. How should I approach her? Right? I get some general principles here, but I want some particulars from my Lord who is alive and loves me and knows more about her than I do and can guide me through this thing. So i got to come to him and work some stuff out. Well, there's not really a formula for it. I can say this, though. We have got to be people who are willing to do this sloppy process many times in our life of, I don't know if this is what he's saying to me, but I've spent some time with him. And I haven't just, like, tossed up some prayers and, like, hey, throw me the crumpled up ball. I actually stop and pray, Lord, what do you want? And I try to sort of think through it with him, alongside him. I stay in it until I get some sense of, like, how to move forward. And I don't always have a lot of confidence this in, but I can get enough confidence to be ready to experiment. I'll give you an example. I remember the first time this was really concrete to me. Uh, shortly after college, I had a lot of yards to mow. And one day in the summer, I was mowing my front yard, my backyard, my neighbor's front yard, my neighbor's backyard. And as I was finishing their front yard, I was very tired. And I noticed that some neighbors across the street had just moved in and they had really tall grass. And I kept getting this like, uh, I, actually at the time it just seemed like an idea. And I was like, no. An idea of, I could go cut their grass. But then finally it just got on me, man. And by the time I was done with the yard, I was like, okay, God. I don't know if this is you, but I'm going to go cut their grass, and when I'm done, you and I are going to debrief. I'm going to test this thing. Was this from you or not? Give me some kind of clue. I think you will. So I go cut their yard, and 45 minutes later, I'm talking with them about Jesus. It's pretty cool. I don't have a lot of stories like that, but that's a good one. Um, and that, that gets the dynamic, hopefully, that it's about, for me, you would see this in my life, hopefully weekly. I get to a place where I want the Lord's inside about a thing. I don't know, but I think maybe I'm going to go for it. And then I'm going to let him train me and revisit and practice this thing. Give me some feedback. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now take inventory for a moment. Do you do this? And if you don't do it, it's okay. But hopefully you see this as part of the narrow path that I'm on. Hopefully you see that this is true. We've got to test to be able to discern. We have to train to discern. It needs constant practice. And for that reason, as we mature in the Lord, 
this gets a little bit more, we can just spot the baby. Amherst and I, we are, I mean, we're in the throes of adoption right now. We want to uh, raise in our family of adopted kids. And we get emails just saying like, hey, pay this huge sum of money, and then in two weeks you can have a baby. And we're like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it's, this is a weighty move. And I'm kind of getting to where I go, yep, we should go for this one. Got interested in this one. I feel a little more comfortable finding a big egg, you know. Okay, uh, last slide. I, there actually isn't a slide, and that's intentional. Did you make it, Brad? It's almost like I imagine the word here was mysterious. I think the word mysterious is really helpful. Um, I have personally not served people, and I have not been served by the way in which people can share that their inner life with the Lord seems crystal clear to them. And maybe that's true, and that's awesome for you. Um, but it, is, it has created funky expectations in me over the years that I've really had to work through because I want to hear from my Lord. And if everyone is saying, like, yeah, the Lord told me blah, 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 and I'm going, he doesn't, he doesn't tell me like they seem to be saying. All I'm getting at here is use this word mysterious. This is mysterious. Or you could use 1 Corinthians. Where is it? Somewhere in 1 Corinthians 13. Where it says that we know him through a, yeah, 13. We know him through a, like a cloudy glass. Not crystal clear. Though maybe he can be clear. Sometimes. All I'm saying is like embrace this thing as mysterious and that's okay. That's cool. We've got a life to learn how to do this. And sometimes it'll be mysterious and sometimes it'll just be sweet and effortless and real. Real Lord just driving you. I meant to warn you when I first started that I wasn't going to end with like a nice, tidy, you know, bow and wrap this up for you guys. I really was just hoping to give you some practical tidbits. So that's kind of what I've done. Uh, and hopefully it's worthwhile for one of you. Um, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to sing some more. And we're going to watch our hearts, right? We're going to make music from our hearts. It's okay to not use your words if you've got to fight for what's going on in here to really express some stuff. During that time, if you've been here before, you know this. There are some folks with white shirts. They're going to have some glowy wristbands. You can come down and receive prayer. Talk with them about anything. We've got people who love you here, care for you. It's all grace. So feel free to come down. Have some courage if you think that your Lord would like you to do this, even if you don't know. Just hear the call from Scripture to remain in a close and settled union. And God wants us to know him as our Lord and Savior King. You're going to see it in the lyrics of the songs. It's the substance of so much of what we sing. So spot it and worship him and draw near to him in that way. And understand that he will draw near to you. Even if it's simple, mysterious leadership about what to do. Or if it's, if, it, if it's him assuring you that he has forgiven you and he's compassionate and he's ready to lead you as your Lord away from this sin. He may tell you about his regard for you, right? You can draw near to him and let him draw near to you as he assures you that he loves you with a familial love permanently, prodigal father style. And understand that you can really relate to him. He is alive as your king right now. And if he's calling you to something hard, maybe just maybe calling you something hard, he can give you all the power you need to love on his behalf. That is the gospel. That's our Lord and Savior and King. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Thank you. I want to say we love you. I know some people, uh, some people Maybe can't say that right now. But we want to love you even if we're there. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so intensely. Uh, you love because you loved us first. Uh, I think of one translation of Ephesians. It says that you set your heart on us to make us whole and holy by your love. Uh, we desperately desire your leadership in our lives. Gosh, if we could just call you on the phone about some of the hard stuff we're in. What a dream. But we will be with you one day. 
Thank you for that promise. And until then, would you give us all the grace we need to do this? I don't know, it feels childlike and awkward and clumsy, but do this thing of drawing near to you and trying to discern how you are addressing us and inviting us. Thank you that you would want to abide in us. Like the psalmist wrote, what is man that you make so much of him, that you visit him every morning? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to sing to you.